0: This is Recorded Future, inside threat intelligence for cybersecurity. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for episode 20 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Today, we're going to take another look at Russia. Here in the United States, there's been no shortage of news about Russia, their alleged interference in our presidential elections, and their greater role in the global cybersecurity ecosystem. But how did we get here? What's the historical context for Russia's cybersecurity strategy and posture? And how does it compare to other players around the world? And what are our options for dealing with it? On today's podcast, we're joined by Peter Debbins, an instructor at the Academy for Defense Intelligence, where he teaches on a wide range of Russian-related topics. His background includes service in the U.S. Army as an officer, commercial business, and Russian area analysis. Stay with us.
1: I got in, involved in, in all things Russian mean because my background is from that area. My mother was Russian, and during World War II, they were slave laborers in a camp in Germany. So when I was growing up as a kid, I got fed lots of stories that made me very interested in this topic. I lived in Russia for three years during the 90s, and during the aughts, I traveled there regularly. Uh, my last time I was there was six years ago, I served in the army for seven and a half years as an officer. I got out. I worked in commercial business for five years and came out here and I worked as a Russian analyst for four years then uh, because, because the guy who runs the cyber division down at the Academy for Defense Intelligence uh, knew me from Fort Meade, he grabbed me to be an instructor. So I started getting into, into the cyber realm for the past year and a half. Russia's in the news with all their cyber operations, all their activities. And the big thing that people don't ask, you know, we always see what they're doing. We don't ask is like, what is their motivations? What's their objective?
0: Can you sort of set the table for us first? What's the history that leads us up to this moment?
1: The the way I look at it is, what is Russia's worldview? And this is really looking at, you know, what is the story that they are telling themselves? I want to take this into context because I want to look at, for us to better understand the Russian, what the story the Russians are telling themselves, because really put is. Their grand strategy is to, you know, use all their means available to achieve their goal, their national goal. And what is their national goal or their national objective? And to better understand that, I actually want to step back and look at the other major players in the world and look at what is their, you know, what is the story that they tell themselves? What is their goals as well? And I'd like to start out actually with China um, because this will actually give some enlightenment as to, you know, what motivates the Chinese in their cyber operations. But the Chinese, the Han, specifically the Han people, look at their country as what they call the Zhang Dao, uh, the Zhang sorry. It, what, they, what their idea is that we are the Middle Kingdom. And as long as there's stability within China itself, uh, naturally, because it's such a huge country, the rest of the world will revolve around it. Sort of like China will be this great gravitational body. But the big emphasis for them is try to maintain internal stability as much as possible. And this comes from their 6,000-year history, that every time that China had internal stability, they were strong. Uh, other nations deferred to them. And when they were divided and weak internally, that's when their enemies came in and took them over. Their cyber strategy is, you know, we, we see this with their great Wall of, their Great firewall of China, where they try to, you know, they have heavy censorship. They control what is placed on their uh, on the Internet that they have within their country. It also tells about why they really try to acquire technology from foreign countries, you know, through their cyber means, because it ensures their internal prosperity. If we look at China, I just want to talk. I just want to touch briefly on China and Russia. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding with their relationship. And this has happened, you know, for the longest time was, you know, for several decades is they view the populist China as teeming with people and wanting to flood north. And the reality is it hasn't happened, um, and it won't happen, mainly because, first of all, I'm from Minnesota, and cold weather, absolutely, compared to warm weather, uh, cold weather really sucks. <laughs> uh, so the Chinese are not going to go to Russia. And actually, the Chinese who do move to Russia generally have settled in the European parts of Russia. Most of them live in the major cities in the West, and, and they, they're there for business purposes. I, I would see you know, Russia playing the junior, par- the junior partner role to China, which suits China's grand strategy, where they see, again, we've established internal stability. Russia is now within our orbit. And so, as a result, is if we think that, hey, if we can talk the Chinese into taking down the Russians, it won't happen, and vice versa, because the Russians do not view the Chinese as a, as a threat. They haven't historically, and nor do they now. For Europe, if you look at Europe, there's about something like over 200 different nationalities on the European continent. And the big thing, the big European objective was how do we maintain unity of over 200 people? in the uh, 200 different nationalities in this era, in this on this continent. And what they've always been doing since Roman times is having a, a, a binding ideology that, to hold them together. You know, whether it be the Roman laws enforced by the Roman legions, whether it be the Catholic Church during the Middle Ages, or if we, you know, more recently look at France with their friend, you know, under Napoleon, with their French revolutionary ideals, they tried to unify Europe and you know, in a more darker period was during the Nazi uh, era, where Hitler, under the ideology of eugenics, tried to unify Europe under a racial hierarchy. Uh, And right now, their current ideology is, you know, we see through the European Union is an emphasis on humanism, where try to make things as comfortable for the human condition as possible. So you see a rather generous welfare state, but you also see it in their cyber policy, where there's a strong emphasis on privacy, because they don't want you know, the human condition cannot be comfortable if you're always embarrassed by what you do online. So they're very strict on their privacy laws. And if you look at U.S. national objectives, we this came out actually since the 1775 uh, when we had a revolution. Our big thing that we look at the world is we do not like it when a hegemon dominates other countries. And our experience was the British tried to dominate our, our interaction with other countries by uh, regulating our trade. And that's why we had our revolutionary war against them. And we've had the Monroe Doctrine, which was a case. Uh, we, we had the open door policy towards China, where we stopped European powers from trying to colonize China. And we've set up these international bodies, whether it be the League of Nations or the United Nations, to allow nations to freely interact with each other, where no one nation dominates another nation. Uh, in the cyber, where we see this in the US in our, in our cyber strategy is we helped establish and promote ICANN. We've established, uh, we, we, we try to ensure an open cyberspace through TOR. So you you see the three main players in the world and you see what their national their national objectives are, their national goals are, and how it influences their cyber operations. So let's get to Russia. How did the Russians see the world? They see two, two things. They see that they've always been invaded, they've been in a state of constant war with the nationalities from the south, from the steppe, primarily from the steppes. So you look at the Tartars, you look at you look at the Mongolians. Since the, the rise of the Turks, They've been in constant state of war with the Ottoman Empire, basically from the 1500s to 1918, when they finally signed a peace treaty. And then, at that point, the Ottoman Empire was abolished when they, uh, when World War One ended. And their big concern is, when they look at Europe, is they're very concerned about one nation becoming a powerful nation and forming alliance with a bunch of smaller nations to invade them. So they've had experience where the Swedes invaded them uh in alliance with a bunch of smaller nations they had experience with the poles invading them again in alliance with smaller nations and then france and then germany and so what happens is their their national goal is they look at their nation and say we are constantly under attack and we've always been in a state of war and so this is very important to understand is like how they view the cyberspace that if they say hey we've always been in a state of war well in the cyberspace we are constantly at a state of war but when they look at their overall grand strategy to ensure their, their safety and their survival is they said, OK, this is what we need to have. We need to have a, uh, neutral states to our west. So any neighboring states on the on our western flank, basically in Europe, should be neutral and not allied to another power. And that way they can ensure safety on the, on, on the western side. On the eastern side, they've never had a concern because the one thing that's very interesting is China and Russia have never been historic enemies. They've never had a really put a, a, a conflict with a geopolitical conflict with each other. But their big concern is, of course, to the South. And what they look at the South is they, say, they look and say, OK, Georgia and Armenia are our buffer states to keep us safe from the attacks from the South. So the, and because they're also Orthodox Christian as well. But then they look at the Balkans and say, OK, those are Orthodox. That should be a area under our influence an area sort of like we view the, the Western Hemisphere as this is this is a neutral area that outsiders should not be involved in. We should be dominant in this area. Uh, and then finally, the final objective, of course, is that the Bosporus Straits would be open and, you know, there would be a, a restored uh, Byzantine control over the Constantinople. So this is where this is their view that they developed in the 1800s. Of course, during the communist times, that whole worldview has was was turned upside down when Russia basically became the promoter of establishing world communism. And now that, you know, know, after communism fell, Russia is steadily defaulting back to its original position. One other thing that I forgot to add in was if you look at where they see Central Asia was they look at Central Asia as an area where they would eventually settle with ethnic Russians and form what they would call a kraina, a borderland. And this is where the term Ukraine comes from. It also means borderland where you would basically have a state but it would would, would defer its foreign policy and defense policy towards Russia. They have this thing called the Gerasimov Doctrine. So General Gerasimov is the chief of the general staff. 2014, he wrote an article in which he said, basically the 21st century, we see a blurred line between war and peace. Again, this goes back to their traditional mindset that Russia is in a constant state of war. When it goes back to the rule, they see themselves in a constant state of war with potential rivals. So if we look at how they view the united states they view us as a potential rival or even actually an actual rival right now in 2003 the general staff of the the russian military came up with what they what they called the defense white paper and it's it's actually it's called the 2003 defense white paper of russian and you can go online and read it yourself it's actually really it's a really interesting uh paper and it was actually written in a very unique time because what happened in 2003 you saw the u.s invasion of iraq you saw u.s already involved in afghanistan and they looked basically at the landscape, and they, they saw, for example, what was going on in the Middle East. They saw the first Gulf War, and they came to some very interesting conclusions. And what ended up happening was it was almost clairvoyant where it saw the emerging of the cyberspace. But this – let me read through this. So they looked at a significant part of all conflict that has asymmetrical nature. Things are not equal on all sides. You don't have – a thousand tanks on the American side, you don't have a thousand tanks on the, Ru- on the Russian side. Um, you don't have a thousand cruise missiles on the Russian side, you don't have a thousand cruise missiles on the American side. Asymmetrical is saying we only have maybe 10 cruise missiles, but there's other weapons we can use. So, for example, guerrilla warfare, or we use terrorists to promote our strategy. So they view that, hey, don't look at warfare, that things have to be equal in some ways, that you have to to be equal to your opponent, that every warfare is asymmetrical. So, and this comes from their strategic thinking that came out from the the Soviet times, they called it correlation of forces, which means that you can have disadvantage in one or several areas, but doesn't prevent you from implementing your strategy or, or achieving your goals. And you know, they did this during the Soviet time, for example, the Soviets had no way of projecting their military power into Latin America or Africa, but they could use indigenous leaders, use indigenous guerrilla forces, as as a bridgehead, and then they would use their labor un- use labor unions and anti-war protesters in Europe and the United States to stop the Europeans or the Americans from uh, stopping the Soviets. So this is where they they looked at the correlation of forces, saying, "We're militarily weak in in amphibious forces, but we have these other resources that we can use." So that's the first point of the defense white paper. And the second part is the outcome of all conflicts Of conflicts is determined by the initial phase. And the party that takes initiative has the advantage. Now, they're looking at at this point as if you look in the cyber realm is they said we have to establish the initiative during the initial phase. So this explains why they're constantly trying to shape the cyberspace right now, even though we're not in actual conflict with them right now in, in other areas. They, they look at the cyberspace says we have to establish the dominance in this area. So second point of the defense white paper is not only military, but political and military command, control system, economic infrastructure, and populations are the primary targets. Then the fourth point is information and electronic warfare have a great impact. The fifth point is unified command and joint cooperations are essential. Going on to the sixth point is going on to they viewed the world during 2003 that everything was going to be decided by precision weapons. Because at that time, that was the generation of warfare we were in. Precision weapons, and they said once air superiority established, is the modes to fight war. Well, if you look at what they're doing, they're not focusing on the precision weapons. I mean, you, we see how they're fighting in um, Syria, where they're just uh, dropping dumb bombs. They're looking and saying, "Our precision weapon systems that we have is now is now the cyber our, our cyber tools." Their, their, their seventh point is conventional forces are important after the precision war is decided. Now, this is written in 2003 when they were looking at precision weapon systems. Now, if you translate 2017, is conventional forces are important after the cyber war is decided. So, and we'll see, you know, we see this, for example, in Crimea or the Ukraine. Then their last point is the dominant, uh, the dominance of air power requires a robust electronic warfare uh, resistant and anti-aircraft system. Again, this is, they saw the world was, back in 2003, as, you know, air, air power is dominant, precision weapons dominant. Now, they actually have a lot more flexibility because they say, hey, we have actually a lot of dominance in the cyberspace. And again, it going back to their second point is the outcome of conflict is determined by its initial phase. And the party that takes initiative has advantage. So this explains why they're in the cyberspace right now, and why they feel that they have to be at at war with us or their rivals in the cyberspace. Even though we're, you know, for example, we may have cultural exchanges, we may have economic relationships, we may be doing uh, joint military exercises together or joint military operations. You know, for example, in the Middle East. But they say at some point we may be at war, and they better establish dominance right away in the cyberspace. And how much of this
0: is that they have leeway because the the lines in the sand when it comes to cyber aren't as clearly drawn as they would be in a traditional, you know, kinetic warfare?
1: Right. And and this goes back to their, you know, goes back to Gerasimov Gr- doctrine. But then again, it goes to it goes to their historical outlook is that there is no definition between a state of war and state of peace. So, and as I said, if you look at, for example, their history since, you know, the 1200s to 1918, when World War One ended, they were in a constant state of war with their southern neighbors and some periods they may have peace. But in, again, going back to it is they look at the um, cyberspace as, hey, this is the place where we can continually maintain our, our, our state of warfare because that's what we're in anyway.
0: So when, when we look back at the Cold War, and I think it was uh, pretty common for people to make comparisons between, for example, the United States and the Soviet Union, and you could say, we, you know, we have this many nuclear warheads, we have this many aircraft carriers, they have this many submarines. How do we make those comparisons in the cyber realm in terms of capabilities?
1: Well, the Russians have a unique situation in which they have a really – a very good public education system at the elementary and the secondary level, plus they have a very good university system. And so they produce all these programmers and all these people with a high level of technical skills, but they don't have an industry to support it. You know, this is why they are very much involved in you know, criminal activity in the cyber realm. But again, there's, you can easily translate their criminal activity into uh, promoting their national objectives. And so I would say, at least in a correlation of, uh, you know, correlation of forces, they have a superiority. And then second is not only in numerical terms um, and skilled terms, but second is they have a different mindset. Uh, third point is they have a different mindset. And this actually is a rather sad product of their of their seventy years of communism. And what communism taught was the human being has no soul. The human being is a material being, and as a result, is they look at relationships as mercantile. That As long as whatever supports the objectives of the party is perfectly acceptable. So the Russians will cross uh, moral boundaries that we and the West, even in China, probably would not. Um, I have to hold on what I'd say about China, because, again, China has that strong communist influence. Um, But, you know, the Chinese and Russians will cross moral boundaries that we won't. Now, again, the Chinese, they have a different national objective. Um, which explains their cyber, their cyber strategy is much more subtle and less blatant. Uh, the Russians are very, um, very blatant, and they're willing to uh, tolerate not only a lot of, I'd say, destruction on their target, but also they're willing to tolerate blowback on their part. They're willing to cross more moral boundaries than we are.
0: And so in the cyber realm, does that give them a certain advantage? Yes. And how does
1: that play out? You look at, for example, in Ukraine, when they hacked the power grids, they shut it down. And you don't know uh, the fortune for Ukraine is they had a lot of legacy infrastructure still in place, which meant that their equipment was still very old. So they could send out their workers to with cell phones and, you know, restore the power. But just think about the effects that that would have had, you know, if somebody was on a dialysis or respirator and you would have had a bunch of you would have had a bunch of fatalities as a result. You know, in the United States, we would say we wouldn't be willing to tolerate that.
0: Looking at the Russian interference with the U.S. election this past cycle, uh, Mm -hmm. how does that play into this historical framework that you describe?
1: If they look at the United States as their major rival, um, the hacking actually serves them very well. Because what what does it do? What what do we see right now going on in the news? We've broken the bond of trust between uh, the leadership of the country and their people. And it makes the nation less effective to project its power and in this case the russians say it makes america less less able to project its power against russian interest because right now there's uh, half the country does not believe that the president is legitimately elected and as a result the country doesn't have full support to support the president's uh national objectives before the election you know because i knew you know we knew that the, the the russians were constantly involved in our electoral process you know they were hacking voting machines um, and then, of course, Podesta email leaks that were going on. And my my hunch was, is, you know, I had this this one prediction and this is why we should never get into prediction. But I said, oh, imagine imagine a case and scenario where Hillary was to to win the election with a majority of electoral votes. Let's say she won more than 270. But Trump would have gotten more popular votes, you know, and whether it had been through manipulation of the voting machines or may have been the case um, what would have been Hillary's situation that she would deal with? She would be, again, in the same situation as Trump, where she would not be regarded by half of the country as legitimate uh, leader of the country.
0: Let's talk about influence operations. Um, Again, with the election, we hear that uh, a lot of what was done was sort of targeting, uh, let's call it propaganda, towards specific voters. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a standard part of the Russian playbook, yes?
1: Yes, it is. And they did this throughout the Cold War. At that time, they were, during the the Soviet times, they were trying to, their target audience was people of left-wing orientation. And now Russia is really, you know, sees this opportunity where people of, let's say, more traditional, what you call right-wing conservative orientations are an untapped market for Russian influence operations. And so you'll see... For example, in, in Russia today, you'll, or even in their cyber operations, if you look at their bots, their trolls, is what what agendas are they trying to promote? Again, they try to portray European and Western society as decadent and Russia as this uh, reviving um, moral authority in the world.
0: What's on the table in terms of uh, the
1: spectrum of possible responses from the West? So can we do a, a counter operation against the Russians? And I'm talking about a counter-influence operation against the Russians. Hmm. Well, here's here's what's very interesting. You know, the Russians have this huge cyber capability, generally externally oriented. And yet, if you look at them internally, you know, unlike the Chinese, the Russian government is actually fairly relaxed about internal opposition. And why is that? Mainly because they, first of all, have – most, most Russians, but I'd say about 70 percent, you know, I don't know the exact – the figure is at least two-thirds, basically get all their news from official sources, you know, whether it be from – and primarily from TV and radio. Because if you look at Russia, a lot of people really don't have regular access to the internet. And second is they actually have a very effective internal counter-propaganda campaign because all they got to do – is they tell stories about, you know, adopted children uh, being adopted by LGBT parents and the parents are abusing these children or, for example, in Belgium, they're euthanizing children. So they have a very effective internal pro- counter propaganda campaign with their population, which is very effective. And third is they actually do allow the opposition to voice their opinion both on media and on the Internet. But the reason why they allow them to do it is because they can say, look, you can voice your opinion, but it has no impact on the Russian psyche. It has, you're not going to change things. So in a sense, it, it, the, the opposition gets demoralized because they said, we can put out all this uh, salacious information about the Russian government. We can put out all this information about how they're abusing their own people, but it really has no impact. And the Russian government can tell the opposition, says, look, you guys have no impact at all. And so how can we, we, we counter it? there's 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 a few things to look at you know and we can look at missed opportunities one of which is can we integrate russia into the atlantic alliance and we tried that during the 90s we actually made an approach to russia to Boris Yeltsin, and said look join nato there was actually two forces in the russian government that stopped it one was the russian military um saying look we're, we're a great power we should have a right to determine our own policy and second was the internal security forces which says um well just because of our culture and our equipment, we won't be able to integrate into the Atlantic Alliance. And actually, I look at it more cynically, is they didn't want to integrate into the Atlantic Alliance because they would have, they would have had to reduce the level of corruption in their society. Like, you know, for example, Romania gets integrated into NATO or, you know, Bulgaria or Croatia. They've had to reduce their corruption, and become a more civil society. Hmm. As in terms of the response... Um, that That's actually deeper. I think, you know, we're strictly more focusing on, on the cyber realm. Counter-information campaigns within Russia are going to have limited effects. I would say what we should do is if the Russians are going to um, use traditionalism, conservatism, nationalism as their, their message, let's see how we can exploit that. And, you know, in a sense where they're throwing nationalism, traditional values and conservatism towards us to win their information operations in the West – How can we do that in return? And if you look at, for example, the case of Navalny, you know, the the opposition leader, um, he's actually tied himself as a nationalist in Russia. That would really be the uh, that would be one of the ways. But again, is is what message do we have to offer? Do we say, hey, the Russians, the Russian government isn't conservative enough because they talk about traditional family values. Yet everyone in the Putin administration all has mistresses or divorce their wives. And then they'll just come back and say, okay, well, you guys promote the LGBT uh, agenda in the West. Uh, and Russians are really left with no choice. And I think Navalny is actually interesting in that he is trying to portray himself as a clean nationalist in Russia. But as for us to, to be able to exploit it, I, I think we're very limited.
0: As we look forward, how do you see this
1: playing out? Well, there's, there's several areas. One is if you look at, at the Ukraine. Again, this goes to the Russian historic perspective. They view Ukraine as part of this greater roof, like Belarus, uh, Ukraine. And, you know, they were trying to get someplace in Central Asia back in the 19, uh, 1800s. The, the thing is, the Russians are, are concerned about themselves because they're going to be running out of money themselves in about two, three years. Hmm. And they're going to have a lot of internal instability at the same time. But at the same time, look at Western Europe. Is Western Europe able to take advantage of that? No, because Western Europe is also running out of money. You look at the, their, their welfare state is going bankrupt. You know, unless you have a, a nationalist force rise in Russia itself, it, it's just going to get uh, darker where the Russians are going to continue to uh, do more operations against us because it's a way to, to prevent their system from collapsing. And and I look at, uh, you know, in the 1970s in the Soviet Union, very interesting that the Soviets were very aggressive in the 1970s at the point where their whole system was starting to fall apart because they realized in order for us to keep in power, we have to undercut everybody else in the world. And that's why, for example, they went in Afghanistan, they went into Latin America, because they say, hey, we have to try to dominate the world before we fall apart. I see, especially in Europe, where they're going to make a very robust campaign, especially in information operations in Europe. And then on top of that is we don't know, especially in in the area what they call the information technical effects, for example, computer network attacks and computer network defense and exploitation. You know, we don't know as how far as they penetrated the European critical network infrastructure.
0: When it comes to those incursions into critical infrastructure, mm-hmm. how much of it is warning shots, you know, shots across the bow to say, "Hey, we have these capabilities. Don't mess don't, with us.
1: Don't don't mess with us." And and it really put us as it, they're trying to create their own form of shock and awe. You know, we, we for example, we had in the early two thousands where you know the Middle East was in shock and awe of U.S. military capabilities. And the same thing is, you know, you look at Ukraine, it's sort of, be, you know, with the case where they're taking down the power grid was, you know, this is an this is a shot across the bow to the West and saying, look, if you really if you cross certain lines with us, we will take down your critical network infrastructure. I don't know uh, how deep they are into it. I would say it's it's an effective deterrent, especially with Europeans.
0: But I guess then there's always the risk that, you know, you you take down one too many power grids and suddenly you're getting attacked with, you know, the response is to come in with traditional weapons.
1: Yes. But then if you look at, you know, the Russian perspective is, you know, they don't have really anything to fear from, you know, European conventional weapons because militarily Europe is, is weak. They would have to fear from the United States. But if you again, if half the population of the United States doesn't believe that Trump is legitimately the president, you know, Trump's ability to respond back would be limited as well. They're looking at the information operations as their correlation of forces, saying, okay, our biggest threat is the United States, but the United States is neutralized because politically they're they're divided.
0: So what what would your advice be to the leaders of the United States for how best to deal with this situation?
1: There's there's, there's two options. Either you, you, you would give the, the Russians their space, or second is Start thinking the long game and say, how do I get how do I get the Russian society to join us to, to, to share our values? And this is I would say the step that you would do it is how do you foster a very strong nationalist movement within Russia itself?
0: Our thanks to Peter Debbins for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. And be sure to save the date for Our Fun, the sixth annual threat intelligence conference coming up in October in Washington, D.C. Attendees will gain valuable insight into threat intelligence best practices by hearing from industry luminaries, peers, and Recorded Future experts. Details are at recordedfuture.com rfun That's R-F-U-N. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online.